Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And we have a guest with us who is a person of significant renown. Uh, number, I was going to make a funny joke from a football movie, but I won't do that. So I just killed my own <laughs> intro. But Matt Milner is from Wheaton Dr. Matt College. Milner. Dr. Matt Milner. Yeah, it's good to have you with us, Matt. Thank you. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. We'll get the football in there someday. <laughs> well, Some motto to kind of charge us into the episode. So yeah. you're an art historian. I am. So like the master of plaster, the king of, <laughs> I, I wish there was an art historian that had an ING. Yeah. Or an, uh, art, an artist rather. Yeah, no. And I, I, under full disclosure, I've known Matt a long time. We worked together years ago at, uh, at a church and I'm just really thrilled to see your professional and um, as well as your spiritual pilgrimage. So very happy and very proud of the work you do. I've made a career out of telling students things that Bill initially told me and getting away with it. So <laughs> seriously, so many, so many of the church historical tales and, and these gems that you pick up from the past that I, I've just passed these on over and over again. I get all the credit for them. So I'd be careful. Bill might ask for royalty checks. Ah, that's the, well, there's not much money coming in. So you so there's, you know, there wouldn't be that much of a you know kickback on that but <laughs> I, either I way. Do, I do have to ask this about Wheaton college in view of what they did at Liberty University, uh, the president calling for the students to be armed. Is it true that the president of Wheaton has offered their various weapons from the Narnia Chronicles to the students there? Is that true? I think so. We have the wardrobe ready and we're just standing by um, and we just we slowly give them out over, over time. We don't, we don't want everyone to come at once. I could but use a little do. bit. I could use a little bit of Lucy's uh, nectar there. I could <laughs> remember that yeah. was repaired. Whatever hurt you, that repaired you. So that can come in handy. Yeah. So today we are going to talk about Mary, and not like Gotta your ex girlfriends. I mean, like like Mary <laughs> Theotokos, the mother of God. Now, Matt, we have like a, a very wide audience. For, for this podcast and not necessarily a huge audience, but a wide audience, one that, that ranges from people that are religiously observant and interested in theology to people that are, would consider themselves relatively secular, probably in the nuns category. I mean, not mm -hmm. secular nuns. I mean, non-observant. <laughs> so I watched a talk you gave in Mariology, which I'll put in the show notes, but I mean, this is for those who are less theologically inclined, but culturally savvy and into what we're doing. I felt at the holidays are an awkward time, right? You get in a dating relationship, maybe for a month or two, and it may be it, it, it's where you got to end it. But it's awkward because you're in the holidays. In the opening of your talk at Wheaton on the parentage of Jesus, you give some advice. Could you just read? Tell us your advice for if you if you need the nuclear strategy for breaking up at the holidays. Well, I so we've been doing a, a little background. We've been doing a series on the Song of Songs, and it was a really bold move. There's a lot of 
confusion about sexuality in our culture. And, and our president just took that head on. And he just, he went Bernard of Clairvaux on it. And Bernard of Clairvaux is this great mystic who, who preached 84, 86 sermons on the Song of Songs and saw it as this mystical map to a, a relationship with God. And so I riffed off of that, and and there's been a lot of talk about romance and both partnerships on earth and then, of course, the partnerships in heaven. And so I began by saying that, realizing there might be some student discomfort in this regard, and I said that the best way to break up with someone, if if you're uncomfortable with this series, is you meet their parents for the first time, and instead of reaching out your hand to greet the parents or acknowledging them, you simply turn to your loved one and you say, I don't care about these people. You are the only one that matters to me. (laughs) And, and this of course would terminate everything. And I use that as an entry point to say, well, you've been talking about your love for Jesus and how he's the most important person in your life. Well, here's Mary and Joseph who come along. Do you just kind of push them aside and say, Jesus, you're the only one that matters to me. I don't care about these people. So I tried to use that as an entry point to get evangelical Christians who probably don't think too much about Mary and Joseph to consider him more seriously because they care about Jesus. So that was the attempt. That might be one of the best begin. sermon illustrations I've ever heard. <laughs> was hey, good. thank you. I, you know, it's funny. I, I wanted to put um, Meet the Parents, the, the movie poster, right. up on the screen while we did that. And Denise, my wife, kind of, let me, let me Google it. She, she's like, that came out of like 2001. And I was like, oh no, the, the students either they'll have been like five years old when it came out. Or so <laughs> anyway, the point is I, I couldn't take that um, Ben Stiller, Robert De Niro thing for granted there, but I don't know. Maybe they knew about it, but the meet the parents intro, that was the goal. You wrote an article a number of years ago uh, in First Things where you talked about this married class that you teach at Wheaton. It might be interesting just if you can summarize. Uh, we'll, we'll put a link uh, on the show notes uh, to it as well. But uh, what was your experience of teaching about Mary and Mariology at, uh, at Wheaton? Well, and for, our, for our listeners that don't understand, right, Wheaton is a bastion, not just a Protestant higher education, but these are people that they don't just believe in the authority of the Bible. They believe the leather is genuine. I mean, <laughs> these are serious yeah, yeah I mean, we're not messing around. Protestants. It would be these are yeah, it's considered kind of the bastion of conservative evangelicalism. Yeah, hundred proof. That's the way we describe ourselves. So we, we take we, all of it. Uh, nevertheless, um, that's not really the way we describe. I was going to say that's not in the literature I've. Seen. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Um, so what what was funny is that so I spent a lot of time in my graduate work thinking about this, and simply because you all you're usually attracted to the things that you don't get a lot of in your own education. And so I didn't get a lot of Mariology, but I was intrigued by it. And so that's what I poured myself into in graduate years. And so I have all this information. I would love to teach a course on this. So I went to do it. And then I'm walking around campus and I see a sign for another course offered the same semester in the history department about Mary. And you'd think that would be the kiss of death, right? New professor comes in and offers this course in competition, but it, they both fill. And there's just, there's a lot of interest in this subject. And I have a lot of um, people that I went to Wheaton with in the 1990s who kind of you know, depart from this form of Christianity rather quickly because they perceive, you know, there's really, you know, there's, there's not room for women in this church. There's not enough talk about women. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to teach it. So, well, for goodness sakes, maybe the reason you don't think that is because you haven't talked about Mary a lot. 
So there's just been a lot of interest in this subject. So the class filled up and we had, we basically just toured Mariology from, it's funny, I would say from the first century, but you can't start there. You have to, you have to start in the Old Testament because right. yeah. they see her behind every rock and bush in the Old Testament, literally. And so you start there and you see kind of the build, of course, the, you have the prophecies of Isaiah and things. And then you, and then we just kind of took it all the way through. And I think a pattern in the history is really discernible. And the reason that 20th century, in my case, or 21st century in this, in students today, their case, the reason that those kind of Protestants don't think about Mary is totally explicable. You can see, you can see exactly the pattern. This is why you forgot about it. And the reason I think that the neglect was there was because of Christian disunity. And so Calvin and Luther and even Zwingli had a rich and robust Mariology. I mean, really interesting. You can go to into Lutheran churches in the 16th century. There's a wonderful book about all of these beautiful Lutheran thrones to Mary that didn't get removed in the Reformation. But what happened is in the next century, not the 16th, but later on, you have this excess of Roman Catholicism with Mary because we're not Protestants. And then you have Protestants who return the favor. Well, then we're not going to talk about her at all. And so there's this Anglican divine named Mark Frank who said, because they almost make a goddess of her, you make of her not so much as a good woman. And then you just have, the, so you essentially have this, um, a time of Marian silence that emerges in the Protestant church, which we have, which has been catastrophic. Because it's not like Mary is an extra credit course. She is a inextricable part of what it means to be an Orthodox Christian. Do you, and, do you think, you know, yeah. Do you think part of that too is because of, of a lot of evangelical circles? I mean, the idea of Mary being the mother of God, um, the important connection of Mary and as, as a symbol of the church. Do you think part of that lack of evangelical interest in the past, at least, uh, has been because for us, uh, or for them, from for evangelicals, you know, the Trinity was not a living doctrine. I mean, mm -hmm. it was it was professed, but it certainly was not at the heart of piety. It was not at the heart. You know, there is no sacramental right. theologies. Do you think that's a dimension of it as well? Right, because you're not you're not in some senses forced to come to terms with the follow up questions if you haven't first been grounded deeply in the Nicene Creed, and so. I mean, that, in some sense, the, the doctrine of the mother of God that Scott mentioned, the Theotokos, which is that Greek word that, that encapsulates this mystery that there is a being in her womb who is divine. That is a follow through point of reasoning that comes after the not invention, but the discernment of the mystery of the Trinity that is articulated in Nicaea and Constantinople in 325 and 381. Then later you have this proclamation that, you know what, even the stuff that's in her womb that he is made of, this, the uterine Jesus, and we can call that God as well. So that's the Council of Ephesus in 431. So that, I think, is an insightful point, Bill, you with the recovery of the doctrine of the Trinity that kind of happened in the 20th century with taking kind of the, I know Schleiermacher gets bad treatment, Scott knows a lot about this, but he did, in some sense, marginalize that doctrine. And with the putting that back at the center, at the front, for example, Karl Barth, who's really popular amongst evangelicals now, this recovery of the doctrine of the Trinity, it's not surprising that not only would a theologian of the stature of Karl Barth recover the doctrine of the virgin birth, but now 
evangelicals who think about the Trinity more robustly are thinking about Mariology as well. We're kind of reliving a church history in a certain sense. Do you think also, I, I forget where it, it might have been Colin Gunton, who was a British theologian of blessed memory. Of, yeah. But somewhere he, I think he talks about that some development of kind of the Mariology in the tradition is because the more Jesus becomes the Pancratator, right? The, the, the sort mm-hmm, of Lord of mm-hmm. all the icons, right? yeah. like not the suffering Jesus, but the cosmic Jesus, you, you still need an intercessor. And so, totally. So Mary makes up for what become, what comes to lack in the humanity of Jesus. So I'm wondering where evangelicals too, just practically, Evangelicals almost have the buddy Jesus, right? Like, so I, I wonder if the, the, the significance of wow. Mary is like, well, I mean, I already got the buddy Jesus. I mean, she's, <laughs> do I really, it's like, it, this is where the brilliance of your analogy, it's like, if Mary becomes the mother-in-law, that I don't, I just want to hang out with buddy Jesus. I mean, that's not his parents. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's interesting. That, I mean, and, and there's, I mean, that is an undeniable development. Of, of the Middle Ages that we, we should keep in mind as well. You do have the sense of she kind of takes his place. There's, there's uh, medieval mystery maps of the world, medieval maps of the world with Jerusalem at the center, and then you have all of the known nations. And then, you, and then above, you've got Jesus, and then you have Mary between this judging Jesus and the cosmos, bearing her breast, because that was an ancient rhetorical motif for show mercy in the ancient world. And then it's picked up in the Christian world. And you're like, wait a second, you know, this is problematic. He, she does kind of usurp that place. And I think it was Adolf Harnack, the German church historian, who was the first to make a really insightful observation that I first encountered with another guy, Yaroslav Pelikan, another historian. He said that when Arius, what Arius wants Jesus to be, okay, Arius is the guy that the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, it, it is set against, right? Um, Arius wanted Jesus to be kind of almost divine, but not fully divine. Well, you know, that, that, um, placeholder had been in some sense created. And then there's this declaration that Jesus is a hundred percent divine. So the placeholder has to be filled. And so some people, Harnack says that maybe Mary kind of fills that category. She's like the, the 90%. And again, that's, 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 I think, distorted thinking, but there, there is a lot of, of, uh, misunderstandings that that go on that lead to these strange unintended consequences but i think one of the the beauties of church history is you 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 can see the car wreck right and you're like well i don't have to fall i don't have to end up you know in the hump by the or you know the the ditch on the side of the road i can kind of stop the process halfway i can kind of gain some glean some of these good insights and not lead to those unfortunate consequences so I wonder you, if that's one way of thinking about it. Yeah, you know, I've also been suspicious that we don't like her politics. I mean, if you read Magnificat, you know, the... Oh, man, the, she's a revolutionary. Yeah, it's very revolutionary. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I don't, yeah. you know, not only is it a reflection, I think, of that kind of the intertestament period, you know, piety that uh, that is tapped in there, um, the, you know, the words that are put in the mouth of Mary. But uh, we, she does not fit in with our worldview, Uh no. And I think it's amazing. Uh, you know, I'm wondering maybe if sometimes that's why those passages didn't even get read or didn't have a prominence in certain churches, uh, unintentionally or intentionally. Yeah, they're, they're, they're dangerous, right? He hath put down the mighty from their seat and hath exalted the humble and the meek. I mean, this is, 
And I, when I think about that, and then and this is the household that Jesus is growing up in. And a lot of the people who've done the, the New Testament exegetical work on, on the, the Magnificat, the passage from Luke 1 that you, that you quoted, they have pretty much come to the conclusion. And again, of course, you have lots of different conclusions, but the good commentaries kind of summarize them all and say this is the most popular option. And the most popular option is it's very likely that she said that. That this is not some later construct by Luke, but that a woman who is versed in the in the Hebrew scriptures is going to have these rhythms, the song of Hannah, it's very similar to that, in her. And so she could have genuinely composed this hymn, and then she's singing it kind of around the house. And then what do you know, 30 years later, you get her son grows up and is like, you know what, blessed are the meek. So basically what you're saying are the is... Merciful. On this point, like I feel like most Bible scholars love to be like, what you're liable to think you read in the Bible. It's not necessarily of course, so. of course, but yeah. On, you but know. on this one, we can say it's so. I mean, it's it's that it's, it's there are a lot yeah. of commentators who <laughs> seem to suggest that. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I'm not necessarily one of those folks who have to think that Mary sang it, but it certainly represents the kind of piety that the uh, some of the earliest memories of Jesus. Uh, Saul and that uh, the Jews who who believed that he was Messiah. And I think it's so, you know, it is it is, you know, some of the most powerful foundational truths of the New Testament that, again, are lost on so much of popular Christianity. And and I think particularly, you know, I don't want to be stereotypical because there's certainly many evangelicals who um, would lift up the same kind of passion concerns Mary does but I think that's something that's been lost in a, in a ignoring Mary as well. I you know I uh, I seldom repeat sermons, but I do cycle through a an a Advent sermon, and I you know I call her the radical virgin because that's really what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's a very radical statement. That's a be a great name for a punk band, Radical Virgins or something. Right? Yeah, there you go. So, like, okay. well, it, go ahead. Oh, it, oh, I was just thinking that like. On one level, right, Nietzsche, who's right about most things, I think, prophetically, said that psychology would replace theology as the queen of the sciences. And mm. yeah, that there's happens. a guy I like reading, Frank Lake, and he basically, he was a psychiatrist who read basically everything, theologically and philosophically, but where he takes very seriously, and he's a Protestant, a Church of England, you know, Reformation enthusiast Protestant. And he says that what's important here, because so much early childhood trauma starts in the womb. He thinks that especially I can't imagine Mary thinking, oh, whispering, oh, here, this little bastard Jesus is going to be born literally like, oh, sure, it's a virgin. Sure, it's not one of the Herodian soldiers or something. So like the kind of anxiety and shame you feel Hmm. like that. And and when a child feels unwanted, that's sometimes where the childhood trauma starts. So he talks about the significance Hmm. of the of this thing in the tradition of the gracing of Mary's womb and that wow. Jesus is given a kind of charismatic, like spirit uh, enlivened peace so that he can emerge as a really spirited and graced human. It, 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 despite, wow. despite which would probably be some hard circumstances in a localized community when everyone knows your story. Yeah. Traumatic birth and while you're on the road, you know, in a stable, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is not exactly easy for him. 
So that is Scott. I'm going to have to look into this because I I had not realized that there was that kind of rich reflection coming from Protestant quarters in psychology in regard to Mariology. I'm going to I'm going to dig into this. And what's interesting about that is that this bears upon the the chief debate about Mary that has happened in the last 500 years, if not more. And that's been about her status as whether or not she has sinned. And what what the Catholic Church has come down on is saying that that womb and that home that he resided in for 40 weeks had to be stain free. The course term would be immaculata, right? Immaculate without macula. That is the doctrine of the immaculate conception, which I mean, every you always hear journalists think that that's referring to Jesus. It's not. Right. It's referring to her. And this is proclaimed ex cathedra, 1854, Pius IX says that this is revealed doctrine, that this body that he is developed in is without original sin. And that the very important move that Catholics should always point out, because there's always misunderstanding, is that Jesus is the one who makes that possible in some mysterious way. It's not like it's of her own merit. He pays but, it backward. There we go. Pays it backward. That would be the movie title. But, but what you just pointed out is that it seems like this psychologist is suggesting that in some sense he does the cleansing in the womb. And that's always what I found intriguing is as, as a, someone who was baptized and confirmed Catholic and loves the Catholic Church, but finds myself on the Protestant, specifically Anglican side of things today, I genuinely cherish the freedom I have to demur on that particular issue because I'm not sure we know. And I'm wondering sometimes, could it be that kind of Jesus enters this womb of a regular woman? And is able to make it a place where he can reside and and do the cleansing rather than, um, in some sense, uh, be stitched together from this sinless body. I, these these are great mysteries, and and I'm I'm actually happy to continue to debate them because huge minds like Thomas Aquinas and Bernard of Clairvaux took differing positions that actually are on the Protestant side of things today as opposed to the Roman Catholic side. But it's one of those debates that keeps the churches apart, unfortunately. Um, but I sometimes think it tends to obscure the grander mystery of the fact that, that um, as I always like to put it, that, that not that God is a mother, but far more daring, that he actually has a mother. That's the ultimate mystery, that he has humbled himself underneath this woman to be born like any of us were. That's the, the Advent mystery, right? The Christmas mystery is the birth. The Advent mystery is the fact that he's kind of hovering in there at about eight months right now. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about that trajectory of thought is that, you know, Feminists have pointed out, and rightly so, that you have to watch your God talk, especially for people who have been wounded by men, particularly fathers. But that's true. You have to be careful. But also, there's a way in which the paternal God talk might be able to be therapeutic for people. And I think the same thing about around people whose deep, I know tons of them, who their deepest childhood wounding was around their mother. And so I, mm. I never forget, I was at a friend my friend Zach's church and on kind of May Day, like the Mary Day after worship, we took the flowers and walked out together and we adorned the statue with these flowers, which is this kind of very Catholic pop, like folk culture kind of thing to do in North America. And I found myself so deeply moved. And I wonder mm. if for the people who are evangelicals by meaning they want to get out there and say some good news to people that would be spiritually helpful. Maybe here's an image 
for hmm. those who've been so deeply, you know, you think of shows like The Sopranos and The Good Wife, where that you have these terrible mothers or mother-in-laws, like, but that's, you know, original sin is, you know, evenly distributed. And a lot of people have that wounding. I wonder if this faithful mother, it was, you were saying yeah. that they're pulling the breast, they're pleading for mercy. I wonder how therapeutic that God has a mother and a good one who, yeah. who, who sees his people as akin to her own. Yeah. I think that's, wow. I think that's powerful. I, you know, also you referred to a work, I guess it's attributed to, to Maximus Confessor. Yeah. Uh, where the idea that, um, um, you know, God, uh, redeemed humanity without the help of a male. And, yeah. uh, it's a very powerful idea. Why don't you share, summarize that, that art or that, that, that work? Yeah. This was a, this is one of those points where you, I think I just kind of got to extreme exhaustion with, with the culture that we inhabit because National Public Radio was giving all of this attention to this really dime store novel written by Kwam Toibin, this very respected novelist, um, that depicts this Mary, totally fictional account that depicts Mary um, in a sense of she's angry, she's bitter, she's mad that the Romans killed her son and he didn't rise from the dead. And so she's just, she's, I mean, you think of, and it's actually the reason I think it was powerful is because you think of, of women today who've lost their sons. And he's like, I'm going to give you a real Mary. So anyway, this, this play is getting all this attention and the suffering Mary and NPR is constantly doing interviews with Calm Toybin and it went on Broadway and it was a flop, but nevertheless, I saw it when it came out here to Chicago and there's a woman in a, in a small hip theater black box in Chicago saying it was not worth it. It was not worth it. I mean, just screaming to an audience. And there was a man actually who had a heart attack during that scene. <laughs> and, and it's just like, wow. So it's like this strange anti-gospel that's being proclaimed. So why am I saying this in regard to your question? The same year that that novel and play was getting all this attention, the long lost life of the Virgin, the earliest life of the Virgin that is known in church history, that is the earliest full life, was discovered. And I'm not talking about some, you know, Gnostic gospel fake document or, you know, grave of Jesus. I'm not talking some History Channel special that's going to get discredited next year. This is an actual rediscovery. And it was by Maximus the Confessor and Stephen Shoemaker, who's this amazing scholar, translated it. And Yale University Press issued it that year. I'm like, NPR, could you maybe give some attention to this incredible document? Because the truth is that the, in this document, Mary actually suffers more than she does in Colm Toybin's novel, where that just abandons the essential tenets of what the Christian tradition has taught. And she is in profound grief and pain as she watches her son. And because she knows of the possibility of the resurrection, of course, that's coming. She can therefore grieve even more. I'm thinking about your podcast a couple of weeks ago, where you talked about this tendency to deny the reality of death. Uh, by Christians who just want to skip to the resurrection, but not in this Maximus life of the Virgin. And the, the quote that you were referring to, Bill, is Maximus basically says that, look, there was no male member involved in the salvation of the world. This happened by the Holy Spirit and this woman, and men were not involved. And it sounds like something that some feminists would write in the 21st century and then kind of project back in the, in the document. 
But this is originally there where Maximus the Confessor is saying that it, the male seed has nothing to do with this. This is going to be the Holy Spirit and this woman. And that I see it as kind of the, the, the end of patriarchy. And you have women cheering in the streets of Constantinople, thanking God that that the curse against Eve has finally been reversed because through this woman who reversed the disobedience. And so that's what's so exciting about that. But why can't our supposed intellectual conduits like NPR that tells us what's going on in the wider world, why, why can't it pay attention to that? So these incredible scholars who rescue these manuscripts from the Georgian language, that is the this, and that's, that's where it, um, that's why it was gone for so long. It only survived in Georgia. He does all this translation work and he doesn't get a flicker of attention because we spend all our time wanting to talk about some Broadway guy. I don't know. So that's, that's the background of that. It's in, and you, and you can just pick it up. You can just pick it up and read on your own. It's just, it's, it goes really quickly. It's beautifully translated. The earliest life of the Virgin that tells you what this Constantinopolitan saint, Maximus the Confessor, the way that he has encapsulated the tradition of this woman from her birth to her death. It's incredible. We'll put a, we'll put a link in the show notes so people could could find yeah, it. Yeah, please, um, please do. People got to read this thing. You know, I also think that something that's totally lost, particularly on people who teach some kind of patriarchal uh, view of male-female relationships, whether it be in the marriage or in church, the idea that that is there if the, you know, the animosity between man and women is a result of the fall. If the hierarchical relationship of the man lording over the woman is part of the fall, you would think between the new Adam and the new Eve that that could be, hmm. that could be redeemed. And I think that, I think that point there is something that is uh, some of the unfinished theology of large segments of our church. So we began yeah. talking yeah. about dating. And courtship. And I'd like to end that. <laughs> it's that it's interesting because you talked a little bit about church unity and Peter Lightheart, who I know you're familiar with his work yeah. in, in a talk really, about man. the end of Protestantism said, you know, we need to realize that those of you who are evangelical Protestants, you're already part of a church where people venerate icons <laughs> and practice Marian devotion. And you Catholic. So a lot of the times we think about ecumenical stuff, like we're dating well, do I really want to get involved? I'm a little attracted to this person and their sacrament stuff, but I don't know. No, it's more like we're married already. That's a good word. You know, and Scott, there, there is a, um interesting kind of moment in Catholic discussions that seems to have died out. I hope it could get re-inaugurated. Maybe Pope Francis will do something with it. But Avery Dulles, and I mentioned this in the article, he, this cardinal in the American Catholic Church who died, I think, in 2008, in the 1970s, he wrote an article. He's saying, look, you know, this whole idea of the Immaculate Conception, it's, it's a peripheral Christian doctrine. It's not at the heart of, of Trinitarian Orthodoxy. And so what you could do is you could remove the anathemas, that is the condemnations of anyone who would think otherwise that are appended to them and still retain the teaching as a part of the Catholic Church. And that might be one of those ecumenical gestures that could take people like the Orthodox tradition who think otherwise about the Virgin Mary, they agree in substance, but differ in the specific definition, it could bring them along. And so there are moves that could be made to take this troubled marriage that you're describing and, and enable it to, to have some reconciliation because there, there are some major rifts and she's been 
maybe you could argue the chief ecumenical stumbling block, but she can also be the chief conduit to unity. I think as we gather around her as the kind of the, as the barrier reef against Gnosticism, the idea that God didn't really reside in this fleshly stuff that we all share. When, if, when we look at it that way, when, when Catholics look over at Protestants, gosh, I'm already married to someone that doesn't uh, honor my, the parent of, uh, of my savior. And, 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 and Protestants say, Hey, we're already in the same church who, of people who are, seems superstitious to me around some of this stuff. Maybe if we we could realize, Hey, maybe we could look together to Mary and ask, Hey, Hey, look, you're his mother. Can you pray for us as we try to fulfill his prayer? And, you know, Advent three, we can do it with joy that we all have a common savior whose mother looks down on us in these really bad moments. And, and is really hopeful for our marriage. Maybe with Mary, we can ponder all these things. I got seven pictures of Buddha The prophets on my tongue Eleven angels of mercy sign Black hole in the sun My heart's dark but it's rising I'm pulling on faith I can see From that black hole on the horizon I hear your voice calling me Let it
I keep it close to my heart. It's like shining in my breast, leading me through the dark. Seven days, seven candles in my window, lighting your way. Your favorite records on the turntable. I drop a needle. 